chapter 3, as we just heard read from Eric, will be our text this morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house today and um, be able to sing praises to him and then to uh, learn a little bit from his word. And um, we're on, a, we're on a, a tour through the study of the church, and right now we have found ourselves kind of locked in on um, this text of scripture, and we'll also uh, grow the next several weeks on um, some other uh, passages in the book of Timothy. But our theme right now is how a person should behave or the proper etiquette to be um, had in the church, or is there a proper way to act in the church? And it's not just referring to um, how we act on Sunday morning when we come in here, because um, obviously this is the building that we call the church, but, but ultimately it refers to how do we act as, as the church, uh, each one of us individually, not just referring to how we function here as the body of believers when we come together on Sunday, but, but how do we function in life? Uh, how do we go through life? And, and really, um, our, our main thought in the, the first three sermons of this part of the series is how important is it that we act a certain way in the church or ask the church? Is there value or um, does it hinder anything if we decide to act however we want and we call ourselves Christians? Does that really matter? Can we just do whatever we want? We're, we're Christians. Jesus died for us and now we can do whatever we want because of that. Um, and it doesn't really matter what we do or is there actually a significance placed in scripture on how Christians act and, and how we live our lives and how we function from day to day in, in, in relation to Uh, First and foremost, proving our own salvation, because obviously um, our actions are evidence to whether or not we're true believers. But in addition to that, we're, this is an important group of people. You're an important person. And and I don't say that to, to build you up in pride. Your importance comes directly from what Jesus Christ did for you and the fact that you are now a child of God. And therefore, everything that you do in your life, how you live your life, is a reflection on the Lord. It's a reflection on your God. Um, Psalm 23 is a a well-known psalm, and the psalmist talks about the results of being a sheep that is in God's sheepfold. And it talks about all of these different characteristics of sheep that are in God's sheepfold. And if if I were to write a Psalm 24 and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall want... Who does that reflect on? It reflects on my shepherd. That whole Psalm 23 is about the, the, the comfort and the nature of the sheep as a result of having this awesome shepherd. So it, there is so much value in that we live out the Psalm 23 because it's reflecting constantly on, on who our shepherd is. Um, he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, Right? So he's leading us in the right paths, he's, he's directing us, he's guiding us, he's instructing us, he's, he's helping us, he's empowering us and strengthening us because it is a, we are constantly reflecting on, on him in everything that we do. So there's great value as the, the body of Christ that we function in, in a, a certain way as to bring glory to his name and to properly reflect what he wants us to accomplish. You see here in our text, um, he says, I, I, I want to come to you. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who was a young preacher. 
And he says, I, I want to come to you, but, it, but it's likely that I'm going to be delayed. And because I'm going to be delayed, I'm going to write you some instructions on how you should behave. Um, the word here uh, means to have the proper eti- etiquette, conversation, or conduct. How you should conduct yourself as or in the church of the living God. And how, how are we to function as the church of the living God based upon the fact that the Apostle Paul is not going to be able to be there for a season? Or we could say it this way, Jesus Christ uh, resurrected and went to heaven 2,000 years ago, right? And when he did that, he left us an instructions and he says, here's how I want you to function because I'm going to be gone for a number of years. I want you to function in a certain way as to bring glory to, to my name. So we're supposed to function in a, in a certain way. The English definition of this term is to a, a customary code of polite behavior in society or among members of a, of a, of a particular group um, or, or, or religious group. Okay, it's the same idea. Um, parents, if you're going to go away, what do you give your kids? You give them some instructions, right? Here's how you're to behave while we're gone as they get older, you are allowed to go a little bit more because they are hopefully mature enough to handle the instructions that you've given them. But while they're young, you don't leave very much because you, um, you don't trust them as much as you do when, hopefully when they get older. We give instructions. Coaches give instructions to players. Uh, my kids, are, are, they, they love sports, and in the summertime, they have um, things that they're supposed to do to prepare themselves for the next season. The coach says, hey, we're not gonna be together this summer, but here's the things I want you to do to prepare yourself for the next season. Here's some behaviors I want you to go through. Bosses do that with employees. The Bible is basically an instruction book on, uh, on who God is, and because of who God is, here's what some of the fruits of that ought to be. It's not, let me say it this way, there's a great danger in seeing the word of God as an instruction book on how things we should do and not do. Because then it becomes very much a legalistic book. People start to say, well, I'm doing all of the right things, so I must be okay. The Bible is not an instruction book in that way as much as it is an instruction book that says this is who God is. And because of who God is, these are the natural results of somebody who properly knows God. Let me illustrate it to you. In Romans chapter number six, there's a group of people who say, because grace is the way that we're saved and and grace abounds where sin abounds, should we not just continue in sin, right? The apostle Paul says, may it never be so. And he says, in the next verse, he says, do you not know? In other words, the apostle Paul implies that for someone to say, I'm saved and therefore I should sin, he implies that there's a lack of understanding in their mind. They don't really know who God is. They don't understand his character. So the issue is not Paul didn't, couldn't, could, have, could, have, could have said, well, do this, this, and this, but he points to the fact that they have a lack of understanding. He, he points into the heart. And so it's important to know that these, these behaviors are not things that we do in the flesh, but they're things that we do because, because God's spirit lives inside of us. That's the type of instructions. We get to know God, and as we know God, we get, we get fruits of knowing God. We experience fruits of knowing God, the um, love, joy, peace, patience, the, the Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. But not just that, but we've just went through a series on the fruits of, of spiritual gifting, and God en- enables us to do certain things for the body of Christ so that he might be glorified. 
Now, there are three things. I'm going to focus on one this week, one next week, and I focused on one two weeks ago that are reasons why it is important that we function a certain way as Christians, why it's important that we have a certain priority list as Christians, why it's important that we love our wives like Christ loved the church, why it's important that wives submit to their husbands, why it's important that children obey their parents in the Lord for this is right, why these things are important in, the, in, the, in Christianity as Christians is because it's a reflection on our God. And, and I'm gonna give you a few thoughts here um, as a review. Two weeks ago, we talked about, first of all, the, the, um, the mission of the church is a reason why it's important for us to live a certain way or to behave a certain way. And what is the mission of the church? We find it here in verse number um, 15. If I delay, you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the household of God or in the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church, our responsibility as a church is to be a pillar or a, and, and a foundation or groundwork or buttress is what the word is that's used here. Um, other versions use the word bulwark. The idea is we're, we as a church, our responsibility is to be a pillar and a bulwark of the truth. Now let, let me describe that for you just for a moment. The truth is the word of God. Uh, John 17 and verse 17, the scripture says, sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is the truth. So this is the truth. Really, this is the only thing that we have in this life that is absolutely guaranteed to be true. We can know that if we go to the word of God, if we get our information from the word of God, that we are getting truth. All of our opinions, all of our thoughts, all of our mindsets, there might be some truth associated with them, but they're not going to be absolute truth. We know when we read the word of God, we are reading the absolute truth. This is actually, according to Timothy, this is a breathed, God's, God's words breathed out. And so we have, we have God's words in our hands here. So the word of God is important. Now, being a pillar a pillar is something that holds something up, right? Okay, and we, we look at pillars, and on top of that is big buildings or whatever might be the case. A pillar is something that holds something up. So what we know is that according to Romans chapter number one, the world is constantly trying to do what with the truth? According to Matt, uh, Romans one and verse 18, the world is constantly trying to push down the truth. The, the word used in that text is suppress the truth. The world is constantly trying to hold the truth down so that they don't have to obey it. It doesn't, have, it doesn't judge or condemn them. They're, they're pressing it down. They're constantly pressing down the truth, pressing down the truth, pressing down the truth. And not only is the world doing that, but in many cases, and unfortunately, the church has begun to adopt that same philosophy. Here's our role as a church. Here's our mission as a church. Our mission as the church is not to let the world suppress the truth. Our mission as a church is to, is to push that truth up and to hold it up with all of our might, with all of our strength, with everything that we have. The world is constantly pushing down the truth. They want the truth to disappear. The truth condemns them. Our job is to set before them what the truth is. It's not our job to judge them. The truth will judge them, right? Right? The truth will do the judging. But our job as Christians is to set before them what the truth looks like. 
And the world wants nothing to do with the truth. They hate the truth. And we can't be afraid of offending them because it's not we who are offending them. It is the truth that is offending them. All we, all we do, folks, is we be the word of God. We preach the word of God. We live the word of God. And people look at our families and people look at our work ethic and people look at these things and they see truth. And it condemns them. It's like shining a light in the midst of darkness and everything that's in that darkness is immediately exposed. Jesus deals with this in John 3 when he talks about Jesus Christ coming into the world as the light and men ran from that light because they loved darkness more than they loved light. I don't know about you, but a lot of testimonies that I've heard of people who have gotten saved and immediately a lot of their friends no longer wanted to hang out with them anymore. They became light. They didn't do the things that they did before. They didn't have to condemn the people that were around them. Their lifestyle itself was a light our job, the world is pressing down, pressing down the truth, pressing down the truth. Our job is to hold it up in our lives and in our words and in our conversation and how we treat each other. The world should look at us and say, that's, that's condemning because I'm not like that. And then the, the, the bulwark or the buttress, as some versions say, is it's a picture of... Um, of an arm that's, that's, that's holding up a wall because the wall has no roof on it. And so there's nothing to support it on the top so that you put this large arm and it supports the wall. And I pictured it this way, that the world is not only trying to press down the truth, but the world is trying to run over the truth. So if you can picture for a moment a, a large wall, on this side of the wall is the world and on this side of the wall is the church, and the wall is truth. The world wants to do nothing more than to push that wall over. And if they push that wall over, whatever, whatever truth that is that, that the, is standing in front of them, whether, whether it be the proper interpretation of a marriage between a man and a woman, that is the truth of God's word. Do you know what the world wants to do with that? The world wants to trample that underfoot. That's what Isaiah tells us, that the truth has fallen in the streets and men are walking on it now. The world wants to trample over the truth, so they want to push that wall of truth over. Here's what we are. We're the bulwark. We're the strength that stands and holds that wall up. We refuse to let that wall fall. We stand behind that wall and the world can attack it all they want, but we're not going to let it fall. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. We're to hold up the truth. We're to lift it up and hold it up so they don't suppress it. And we're to hold it up or support it so they can't run it over. The church, we as the church have failed in so many ways in doing this. And just in small things, the world is so methodical and they're so patient and they're so consistent. And the devil is all of those things to, to get us to just give a little bit of leeway. And a, a picture with me again, a, a wall. And once that wall starts to lean, what are the chances of it falling? Its strongest point is when there's people, when there's something supporting it and it's straight up and down. That's his strongest point. Once it starts to lean a little bit, sooner or later, it's going to go down, isn't it? 
We can't let the truth, and I, I brought up one truth, but that's just one truth that is falling today, that the church is allowing to slip. And when we can go back 20 years, and it was, that was adultery was that truth that now is no big deal anymore. Why did adultery became no big deal? Because we stopped supporting it. We stopped saying we're going to stand against we're going to stand against adultery and fornication. We're going to stand against these things. We're going to stand against pornography. We're going to hold up that wall of truth. God says nothing evil should come before our eyes. We're going to stand and we're going to hold that truth up. And we're going to show the world what it looks like to be a man with a clean mind and a clean heart. The world has no example anymore. There's no light to shine on them. The walls have fallen. And it's almost impossible to get them back up. Maybe we're not going to get them back up, but maybe we hold the walls up that are still up and support those. We are, church, you and I, we are the pillars and the buttress or the bulwark of the truth. It's so important that we play our role. You say, Pastor John, we're not really that important because God is the one who's doing all of the work, and I understand that. But God doesn't work without the truth. And he's called us to be the ones who support it and hold it up and defend against it being toppled down. We talked about how we do that, and I'm just going to give you these things, and we're going to move on. Believing the truth, memorizing the truth, obeying the truth, living the truth, proclaiming the truth, meditating on the truth, studying the truth, defending the truth, and obeying the truth. Those are uh, nine ways in which we can become the proper, uh, the church as it does its mission for the Lord. Now, this morning, that was all introduction. So, <laughs> just pray really hard that the rest goes fast, amen. The, the rest of my message this morning is I want to talk to you about what is the truth that we're holding up. What, what is the truth that we're supporting? What is important about it? We, we know the truth is, is called the gospel, right? The gospel that we support, the gospel that we hold up, the, the truth that we hold up and support is the gospel. The gospel means good news. And the gospel is good news, Amen. The gospel is good news. It's not just good news. The gospel is the best news to ever happen to this world. The gospel is the best news to ever happen to this world. We have to know what we're holding up so that we don't fight against things that are not important, but we stand for those things that attack the gospel, that attack the truths of God's word. We stand up against those things that are truly an, an offense to God and his holy character and his holy word and his gospel. If we don't know what we're holding up, there's, listen folks, there are hundreds of churches out there that you can go to that stand against this and that. They, they have all of these issues that they stand against that have really no impact at all on who God is or what the gospel is. They just, they're just against everything, right? We're not against everything, but we're for something. And by being for something, there's some things that we're gonna naturally be against, but we don't live our lives to be against things. We live our lives to be for things. We live our lives for the gospel. That's why we do what we do. That's why the apostles, 12 of the apostles, at least 11 gave up their lives for this message. Because this message was 
really, really, really important. So I want to talk to you this morning about the the message. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the mystery. The Bible says here in our text, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is not just a mystery. We'll look at that next week, but it's also a message. The message is found in in this um, last verse as it flows. I'm going to give you some thoughts on this. He says, he, and in, in other versions, it says God, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So we're going to look at the explanation, the evidence, and then the expectations, if you're taking notes. The explanation, the evidence, and then the expectation when it comes to the gospel. What is the explanation? Number one, the gospel includes two facets, okay? Number one is the earthly ministry of Christ. We call that the incarnation, okay? Incarnation means to embody something in the flesh, for something to become visible that before was invisible. And the word uh, here used in the text, it says that he was manifested in the flesh, is a dangerous word because some people believe that Jesus Christ was not God, but just the manifestation of God. The word literally means to make something visible. Okay, so we don't think of manifestation as Jesus Christ not being God, but being a manifestation of God, but Jesus Christ is God, visible. He is the visible expression of God. In other words, God is spirit. According to John, we cannot see him, but Jesus Christ is the embodiment. He is God in the flesh. He is the manifestation of God. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1 and verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which comes back from a prophecy in the Old Testament, which means God with us. If we can just stop for a moment and meditate on the fact that the God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of all things, became a man. He became a man and he came from the heaven of heavens. God the Son came from the heaven of heavens and he humbled himself according to Philippians chapter number two. He took upon himself the form of a man or he became a man. And not not just any man, but Jesus Christ became the ultimate servant. The word in the Greek that's used there means that he became a slave. He became the ultimate servant to the will of God the Father. That was what Jesus Christ was doing when he came into this this world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally existing. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. Jesus Christ did not have a beginning when he was incarnated into this world. He was before the foundation of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus Christ. He eternally existed before the foundations of the world. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all existing before this world was ever even thought of in perfect harmony. Jesus wasn't, God was not lacking anything when he sent his Son to this earth. He was lacking nothing. Some people say, well, Jesus Christ was lonely, or God was lonely, and so he needed to come to the earth and redeem people so that he wouldn't be lonely anymore. God was not lonely. 
God was not lacking in any way. Jesus Christ came into this world at the commission of God the Father for the sake of redeeming people to display his love towards us. That's the reason why Jesus Christ came to this world. He did not come because he was lacking in any way. Jesus Christ became a man. God became a man. This is so important and so significant because the Bible teaches that there isn't a sacrifice that can satisfy the debts of our sins lest a man die in our place, a body, a man just like we are, a man with a human nature just like we had, had to come into this world and take upon himself our sins and die in our place and Jesus Christ was that man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ was the was the God-man. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. You say, Pastor John, how is that possible? He was God. Divine humanity is a part of his incarnation. It is important that we believe that God came to this earth. It is not, it is not, it is, let me say this right. It is not insignificant to the gospel that God came to earth. It is important to the gospel that a person embraces the fact that God came to this earth. This is the gospel. The very first line is God is manifested or revealed in the flesh. Divine humanity, divine birth. We see in the text there in Matthew 1 as well as in Luke 1 and and back in Isaiah as well that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was not conceived by man because through man came sin and the sin nature comes through man. Jesus Christ was not conceived by a man, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon um, I, want, I wanted to say Eve, but <laughs> she did not come upon Eve. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and con- she conceived in her womb Jesus Christ, God the Son. And her birth, his birth, Jesus Christ, was a perfect birth. No sinful nature passed down to Jesus Christ based upon the divine nature of his birth. We know this, that sin Romans 5 and verse 12 comes through man and it's passed down from generation to generation through man, which is why Jesus Christ was born of the Father, born of God. He lived a divine life. This is also significant because Jesus Christ's divine life was what made him him sufficient or significant in regards to dying for our sins. If Jesus Christ had had his own sins, Jesus Christ would have had to die for his own sins. But he was divine in his life. He was perfect in his living. He was sinless. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 that he was tested or tempted in all ways just like we are. That means that every temptation and every struggle and every difficulty that you've ever faced, Jesus Christ faced it. And he was tempted just like we are, but yet he never gave in to temptation. Do you know what this means? This means two things. Number one is we have a perfect sacrifice for our sins, but number two, we have a perfect judge. 
Jesus Christ is not just the perfect sacrifice for sins, but he is also the perfect judge because he proved in living a perfect life that man could be held to that standard. And all men are held to that standard. Perfection. And it's because the God-man lived perfectly the perfect life. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Bible says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is all about the incarnation of Christ. Number four, his divine punishment and payment. As the Son of God, Jesus Christ took upon human form, took upon him, became a man, and he died a sin, he died sinlessly as a sinner. Does that make sense? He died sinlessly as a sinner. Jesus Christ took upon himself, according to Isaiah, he took upon himself our sins. He bore our iniquities. Our sins were placed upon his back and sinlessly he was treated as a sinner. So that we, sinners, can be treated as sinless. Jesus Christ is the divine punishment. It took a divine punishment for sin because there was no one else who was capable of satisfying the divine wrath of God. God's wrath towards sin, folks, listen. God's wrath towards sin is real. It is real and it is serious. His wrath is perfect His wrath is divine, and nothing will satisfy it other than the perfect sacrifice. God sent his son into this world, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to display his love for us. If you're a sinner with us this morning, then first of all, welcome to the club. We all are there. Amen? Can I get some agreement? Yes. We are all sinners. But listen, we are not all hopeless. Because there is a divine, perfect God, the Son, who came into this earth and took upon himself the sins of all those who would believe and embrace his work. And he bore those sins perfectly. Isn't that amazing? He bore those sins perfectly so that we would not have to because we were not capable of doing it. You ever wonder why hell is forever? And why hell is so horrible? I know we hate to talk about hell, but let's just do it for a moment. You ever wonder why hell is so horrible and why it's forever? Because, my friend, you will never satisfy God's wrath. You can't. But you don't have to. You don't have to satisfy God's wrath. Because Jesus did. He experienced the most horrible death that mankind could ever experience perfectly. Why? Because he loved a group of sinners that in 2018 would go to Grace Bible Church in Hollister, California. And he said, I'm going to redeem those people for myself. I'm going to show them my love. There is no greater love than that, is there, my friend? There is no greater love than that. He is the divine punishment 
and the divine payment for our sins. This is the incarnation. Number two, the second part of the, of the gospel or the second part of what, what we will call um, the earthly ministry of Christ is the resurrection. Remember this. Without the resurrection, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ would not accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. The resurrection was absolutely necessary. This is why the second phrase in this verse says, he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ, being God the Son, was vindicated or evidenced or justified by the work of the power of the Spirit, raising him up from the dead. The fact that Jesus Christ is no longer dead is evidence that he is God, the Son. That what he claims and what he promises and what he accomplishes will come true because he is no longer in the grave. He is risen from the grave just like he said he would do. Jesus Christ was dead for three days in the grave, and he rose again. The Bible tells us in John 10 that he rose by his own power and his own might. Other texts tell us that he rose by the power of the Spirit. What we do know is this, he rose. He's not in the grave anymore. He's alive. He defeated all of those things that held us in bondage. He defeated sin. He defeated death he defeated hell, he defeated condemnation, he defeated Satan, he defeated all of those things that want to destroy you. He defeated them when he rose up from that grave the third day. And now he offers you the resurrection that he, that he vindicated his death by, he offers that resurrection to you that you might have new life. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 that we died with Christ, but if we died with Christ, we believe that we have also resurrected with him. And that now we shouldn't live like we lived before, but we should now live differently. We should now live differently. Through the resurrection, we have extraordinary hope. Through the resurrection, we have those who believe in Christ have new life. Through the resurrection, we have the promise of forgiveness. Through the resurrection, we have the promise of having Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. Listen to what Apostle Paul says to the Roman church. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, Jesus says about the gospels that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 14, and if Christ has not risen from the dead, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And in verse 17, if Christ has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead that day, yes, all of your sins were paid for in his death, but you remain in your sins. Because of the resurrection, we not only are promised that all of our sins are forgiven, but we're promised the imputation of his, the, the gift, let me, let me put it down to layman's terms. We are promised that he has gifted us his righteousness freely. Like here, it's a gift for you to have. 
my righteousness, perfect. You can have it this morning. If you're a sinner this morning and you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm a sinner and I know that I need to be saved, Jesus Christ is holding out to you his righteousness. Romans chapter number five says that the gift of righteousness leads to everlasting life. He's not dead, folks. He's alive. And because he's alive, it is a comfort to know that we can be alive too. We, according to Ephesians 2, who were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made alive. He has made us alive. So that's the explanation of the gospel The gospel is simple. We are sinners. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world, took upon himself our sins, hung on a tree, and died in our place, paying the full penalty for our sins. He rose again the third day, defeating all of those things that would destroy us, and he now gives us the life that he displayed for us. You want to be a part of that? Embrace it by faith. Embrace it by faith. Number two, the evidence. Just real quick, I'm I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. The evidence. If you're doubting this morning if this stuff is true, here's what the Bible says. He was seen by angels. Do you know what the angels said when when when, when Jesus' mother and his disciples came to the tomb? He is not here for he is, he is risen. The angels gave evidence that everything that Jesus Christ promised the disciples had come true. So amazing. Jesus Christ, the Bible says he spent three days in the center of the earth preaching to those who were captive, preaching to the spirits that were captive in the center of the earth. Those angels gave witness to the fact that Jesus Christ, the son of God, had risen from the grave. And then the angels in heaven, when Jesus Christ ascended after spending some days on this earth, he ascended, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and the angels who are in heaven worship him as the risen son of God. You need more evidence than that? Well, in case you do, there's more here. He, Jesus Christ, is proclaimed throughout the world. There's no message like Jesus. Yes, there are people all over the world who hate the message of Jesus Christ. But listen, folks, their very hatred of the message of Jesus Christ gives evidence to the fact that it is true. People don't hate things that are not significant or important. But not only that, Jesus Christ's message is preached all over this globe. You can find religions in little pockets, right? Certain religions, we go to a certain country, we'll find a dominant religion there, won't we? But there's no religion like the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it goes throughout the whole entire world. You know what that is? That's evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that he can save people from their sins. This is why our job is important. This is why we have to live a certain way. Not only that, but listen to what he says. Proclaimed on in the world and believed on, or in the nations and believed on in the world. Not only is the fact that the gospel is in all the world important, but the lives of those who have been touched by the hand of God is evidence that what he said is true. You know something? The transformation that happened in your life because God came 
to become a part of it by the power of his spirit and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The reality of that and the change that God has performed in you is evidence to everything that he says. And may I submit to you folks this, that if we display the work of God, if we live lives of sinfulness and we live lives of of bitterness and we live lives of anger and we live lives of frustration and we live lives of of a God who is not sovereign and not capable and not good, it will be displayed to the world around us. I was at a conference this week and one of the preachers says, when we preach about Christ, we should smile because it's the best news there is. When we live out the message of Christ, we should enjoy it because it is the best news there is. The faith that we have, the faith that you have, the faith that I have, that I woke up this morning believing in Jesus Christ again is evidence of his power and his might. Jesus Christ can do that for you. You say, Pastor Don, I don't believe. I'm I'm an atheist. I don't believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus can change that. Tell him where you're at. Acknowledge to him where you're at and ask him to make it clear to you. I've heard so many testimonies of people who didn't know who God was and said, God, please make yourself real to me. And God made himself real to them. We serve a gracious, loving God and he cares. The evidence of the angels, the evidence of people, the evidence of conversion, these are evidences. And then lastly, the expectation The Bible says in the last phrase of that, he was taken up into glory. When we see that phrase, it's it's important to remember a few things about that phrase. First of all, we remember that when Jesus Christ was taken up into the glory, the implications is that he was received, he was accepted by the Father. Even after his death, burial, and resurrection, he was accepted by the Father. It was a a picture of the high priest and the sacrifice that the high priest had made was accepted by the Father. And therefore, for whomever that, that sacrifice was made, those people were forgiven. But not only that, but when Jesus Christ entered into the heavenlies, the Bible says that he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, which implies that some versions use the term he was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. This implies the fact that when Jesus Christ was received back up into glory, he was placed into a position of great authority. You say, Pastor John, why is it important that Jesus Christ was placed in a position of great authority? Because Jesus Christ is now the one who is the just God and the justifying God. He is authoritative to not only condemn man for sins, but now he has the same authority to forgive men for sins. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ made it possible for God to justly forgive people's sins. Prior to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God had to judge all of man's sins. In the Old Testament, he was able to forgive sins based upon a future sacrifice. Where we live today, he is able to forgive our sins based upon a past sacrifice. He sits in a position of authority. He can forgive your sins this morning. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just Get those two words, faithful and just, to forgive sins. When he entered heaven, he was seated enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, given full authority to not only condemn men for sins, which he will do, but he was given full authority to save men from their sins.
The Bible tells us in John 5, 21 and 22, for as the Father raised the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. When he entered into heaven, he was placed in a place of authority that he can do what he wills. And folks, listen, if you will come to him and you will fall at his feet and you will plead with him for mercy and grace, you will receive it. That's the kind of God he is. He is not only authoritative, he is sovereign. The Bible says according to the resurrection and, the new, and his place now in heaven, all things have been placed under his foot. That his enemies would be made his footstools. This means that we can trust God in every area of our lives. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good, right? We know as Christians that God is in control of everything. Next time a word of complaint begins to flow out of your mouth, stop and say, I believe that God is in control of this situation. Because friends, listen to me. He is. He is. He is our advocate. Now in heaven, he advocates for us. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all do, we have an advocate. We have one who goes between and stands on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous. And then lastly, we have an intercessor. Jesus Christ is our intercessor. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, Romans 8, 34, ascended up into heaven, that he was seated at the right hand of God, ever living, meaning his life's purpose was to make intercession for our sins. This is what we expect. This is what we hope in. This is what we live for. This is what we walk right for because we have hope that we have a God who is in control. We have a hope that we have a God that is our advocate. He is our intercessor. We have a hope that we have a God that can do what he says he can do. Our hope in that God causes us to live a life that is pure and separated for his glory. So let me say this in closing. Maybe you're with us this morning and you're not a part of Jesus Christ's family. You're not a part of the body of Christ. According to the word of God, if you were to leave this world today, you would stand before God and he would be your judge and you would be guilty before him because you have sinned. And we all have sinned, right? The Bible says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're no different than the rest of us in here. We're all in the same boat when it comes to being sinners, aren't we? The issue is this, that Jesus Christ has promised forgiveness to those who come to him, confess their sins or repent of their sins and place their faith in what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ has promised forgiveness to those people and he, according to what we just studied, can justly do that very thing. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, I, I am in my sins, Pastor John, and I, I don't know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I don't know him. He's not my friend. He's not my father. He's not anything to me except judge. And I'm afraid of standing before him today. Listen to me, my friend. Come before him in humility and brokenness, and Jesus Christ will receive you with grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you've experienced that, say amen on that. Amen. There's evidence all over this auditorium that that is true. 
when we stand before God one day, he will either be our judge or he will be the one who has justified us. He will either be our judge or our forgiver. And it will all be dependent not on what we have done, but it will be dependent on what Jesus Christ did and our faith and dependence on him. I just want you to know that we love you and we're glad that you're here and we pray that Jesus Christ performs a miracle in your heart today. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're a part of the body of Christ, listen to me, you're important. Your every step that you walk throughout your life, the moments that you want to be angry and frustrated, the moments where you want to do things that appease the flesh, all of these things are important because they're a reflection on who you belong to. Why do we have proper etiquette in the church? Because we have the most important message that this world could ever hear. It's more important than the messages that were sent to the Titanic before it went down. They're more important than the messages that were sent to the president prior to Pearl Harbor. They're more important than those messages. We carry the message of deliverance and salvation. We must be ready. We must be prepared to do God's work in whatever situation and whatever circumstance he calls us to. Why do we need to have proper etiquette and behavior? Because, folks, we carry a great message. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the call to, to hold it up and to, to keep the world from trampling it down. Thank you for the salvation that you've given us and the message of hope and deliverance. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that they would come in repentance. They would come in acknowledgement of their sin and they would trust that what Jesus Christ did for them was enough. Please, Lord God, perform a miracle as a leader in Christ's name.